What money means to us is below the surface. We don't look at it generally. We don't talk about our relationship to money. We might talk about our relationship to food. We might talk to our friends and family about relationships with intimate partners, but we don't talk about our relationship to money. And it bubbles along beneath the surface. And yet it drives our earning capacity. It dictates kind of how much we save, how much we invest, how much we earn. So it is important Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich, and host of The Wallet. My guest today is Simone Gesson. She's the founder of Wise Monkey Financial Coaching and co-author of Economics. Money is a loaded subject and is often associated with fear, guilt, and shame. But money issues are quite common and can create a lot of stress and anxiety. Sometimes we don't even know where to start and financial advice can be seen as expensive or inaccessible. However, when we understand our unconscious relationship with money, we can better manage our finances and think about creating a life we want, from repaying debt, saving more, building wealth. In this episode, Simone shares powerful exercises that help us understand how we think and feel about money. She offers practical tips for building a positive money mindset once we have identified our limiting financial beliefs. We also take a look at some of the most common emotions that drive impulse purchases, as well as how we can resist today's temptations to spend. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pension B. Pension B has helped over 400,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account. Check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals, all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Beekeeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always, with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Hi, Simon. How are you today? Hi, Emily. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I mean, given the, you know, the current conditions, but now we're you know, fine and healthy. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you on, on the wallet. There's so many things we, we want to discuss. You know, I, I had a chat with you last week. I've read your book, Economics, which is fantastic. So I think today we'll focus on, you know, financial advice, financial coaching. And we'll also talk about like very simple rules or maybe principles that will help people manage their money and also understand their, their, their feelings about money. So just to, to get started, I mean, you're, you're the founder of Wise Money Financial Coaching, um, but you have a background in, you know, financial advice. So can you tell me, you know, maybe where you come from <laughs> as a little summary and, and, and why did you start working in, uh, in finance? Uh, yeah, I, I started, I left university and my first job as a graduate was training to be an actuary. So the 
those people that do the the mathematics behind insurance and pensions and so I was working for a for a pension consultancy and the the, the age-old joke there is that people that are attracted to being becoming an actor are those that find accountancy too too interesting <laughs> so it's um it's kind of got a bit of a boring reputation and I didn't really know what I was getting into to be honest I had no work experience or anything like that and I realized quite early on that it was a job that was very much behind the scenes for most of the time. It would take years before I was in front of a client. And so I I sidestepped within the same organization. They were really keen to keep me and they offered me a couple of different roles in different departments. It was a, a, a big kind of multinational company and they gave me other opportunities. And the first one I rejected, but the second one was to train to become a financial advisor and to begin by doing the admin side of it. Nowadays, you call it power planning. Yeah. You didn't have that language back then. I was working for somebody who took me under a kind of mentorship almost and, and explained very you know steadily kind of different financial products and how they work. And, and I got really interested, really, really interested. And I found very quickly, they started giving me client experience and I was out there kind of working with my own clients. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I loved working with individuals. I recognized that I'd found my forte, which was working with people and money had to, happened to be the vehicle that I was doing it through, really. Yeah, no, the, the, it's, it's great to hear. And from your days as a financial advisor and, and you spent quite you know while working as a financial advisor you started to look into money coaching so maybe you can tell us you know what's the difference between between money coaching and financial advice yeah I mean it, it wasn't that I I stepped away and then decided to look into financial coaching and find a route but but it was more that it it found me <laughs> I'll, I'll explain in a moment but But the way I see it is financial advice is very much centered on helping people manage their money or manage the investment side of their lives. Mostly financial advice practices in the UK have a, a minimum investment that they they work with clients who have a certain amount of money to invest, maybe £100,000 minimum, and they will help them manage that money and select kind of portfolios of ISIS and pensions and that kind of thing. So it's the planning side of financial advice, helping people articulate their goals and, and build financial plans around that. And then the execution of financial products to meet the goals. That's, that's financial advice. And since I left the industry, which is kind of 20 years ago now, there has been a lot of change and a lot of good positive change. That planning piece is quite separate to the advice piece for many financial planning practices. Not the majority, sadly, but many. But this coaching piece is something that back then, 20 years ago, was no one was doing or talking about in the UK. For me, I felt I left this multinational company I was working for and I joined a team of women-only financial advisors specializing in advising women. And it was a really nice role because we were working, the industry is very male-dominated. There, were, there weren't that many women in the industry back then, and there still aren't. It's still massively dominated by, by men. And so lots of women were attracted to working with women. And so that's where I, I spent the last kind of four years of my 
working life. I say that almost because I feel like since then it hasn't been a working life. It's just been my life. But when I was working as a financial advisor, the last role I was in, but I still felt that there was a there was a massive need for guidance and support with money that wasn't about products. And I I chose to leave that company not for any other reason really, apart from the fact that I decided to to reach one of my well my biggest goal at the time which was traveling and I took a year out and I did this thing that had been bugging me for for decades really this need to kind of get out there and travel the world and I did that and I came back and when I came back and I did have a very short stint with another company that made me realize there was more that I could be doing and it was very difficult to find a company that really would meet my criteria it had to be 100% client led so it was not about products it was not about sales it was never about commissions or anything like that and I realized that the thing that was bugging me really was sales was the fact that you can't spend time helping somebody because at the end of the day they're interested in the company were interested in the turnover that I was generating for them. I wanted to help ordinary people get their foot on the ladder, help them shift behaviours that weren't serving them. Many people are, you know, they might be earning really well, but they may not have anything to show for it. There was nowhere to go, really, if you wanted guidance and support to help you on your way that wasn't about also taking you through the the execution of financial products. So that's that's where it all began, really, is I felt there was a need for something else. And coaching, it, it's not about making recommendations. It's not about giving opinions. It's much more focused on empowerment. It's helping people challenge some behaviours, perhaps, that don't serve them. We can definitely do the planning piece. We can do the uh, identifying what's truly important, the, their goals, their values, we can do the, the mathematical side of, you know, what do you need to save in order to reach this goal in the future? So we can do all that type of stuff. But the, the really important piece is the, the pure coaching piece is where you're helping clients gain insights and understanding through the form of questions. So what's getting in the way? What are the fears? And talk me through the guilt and shame that you're experiencing. People have a lot of emotion attached to money and it often isn't talked about it's not talked about amongst family and friends it's sometimes not talked about with their partner and so this is a safe space to be able to talk through your emotional relationship to money as well as the practical side and it's nothing to do with advice giving opinions but it is there is a mentor role where you're helping people understand pensions versus ISAs, how much to save for for a rainy day, how to manage money, how to spread out the cost for those kind of occasional costs that you might otherwise put on a credit card, how to avoid impulse spending. It tackles all of the behaviour side of it, the emotional side of it, and some of the practical side of it. But the only thing it doesn't do is the execution and recommendations of financial products. Yeah, no, I I completely understand why uh, we need financial coaching and and how different is it from financial advice. And and to be honest, what I've you know observing and and we've seen a lot of research is that 
there's a gap in financial advice. So not everyone can, you know, work with a financial advisor because maybe, you know, it's expensive or you can't really find someone you can work with. Uh, and emotions, it's, it's such a big part, um, you know, of, of money management. Now, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it's not, I'm sure it wasn't easy for you um, to set up, you know, your firm and sort of, you know, train yourself and, and learn about, you know, what you've been talking about, emotions, feeling about money, coaching. We talked about, you know, NLP, um, because this was slightly different from, um, you know, advice and what you were doing before. So, you, you know, you come with your financial advice background, but now financial coaching is not necessarily, you know, regulated by the FCA. So, I mean, did you face any obstacles or, or, or difficulties, you know, setting up your business and, and, and doing more financial coaching? For, for me, it was a kind of steady run into uh, running my own business. So it, it, it wasn't driven by the fact that I wanted to launch something of my own. It was really driven by the fact that there wasn't anything out there that worked in the way that I wanted to work. So I had to create it almost. Yeah. So that's kind of how it began. I took on a role part-time that would just pay me a bit of money and, and mean that it it was okay for this to take a little bit of time to work. So I dedicated one day a week to it initially, then two, then three. And it went, I went up to five days, probably more than five days actually, but I went up to the kind of five days a week after about six months. So it was a kind of gradual ease into self-employment. And I was very lucky. Well, first of all, I had a a number of the clients I'd worked with previously came with me. So I already had a little bit of a kind of client bank. And then I was very lucky I had a double page spread in, in a national newspaper that wrote an article about my work six months in. And then that gave me a huge trance of new clients and stuff. So it wasn't too difficult to kind of get going. The difficulty was actually what kind of transpired for me was about my own relationship to money. Yeah. And I recognized that I was very driven to to meet the demand of this kind of audience. But I also found, or type of client, but I also found that I was doing a lot of undercharging, giving time away. Yeah. I had a sliding scale based on affordability and I put everyone into the lower bracket because if people were not managing money very well, even though their salary was very high, I would still put them into the lower bracket. And so I found that I was getting in my own way. I was trying to do everything on my own. And so, yeah, I wasn't kind of delegating and, and I was um, doing too many different things. And so I wasn't generating enough to make it, it I, I made it work, but I wasn't, what, what my sacrifice at the time was I wasn't putting anything away for the future. No. I managed, I didn't get into any debt or anything like that, but that was probably the biggest thing was just learning how to charge properly for my time and, you know, expect to generate a good income from this. And that was actually working on my own money mindset, really. I, I, I recognized where that had come from, what the block was, and I did an exercise for myself, which is similar to the kind of exercise that I do with my clients to really break through uh, create more of a breakthrough on that. So that was probably the thing, the most profound thing I had to overcome. Yeah, I can I can relate to that as a as a business owner, and and especially when we, we work in the space, we write about money, and 
yeah, you have to, to look at your own relationship with, with money and you know you have to save for the future, but you're building a business. You don't necessarily have enough income. So you're yeah, raising your prices and stuff. These are, yeah, challenging and, and very important, you know, discussions to have. Now, if we talk about the book you co-authored, Economics, what I love about it is that it's, you know, very clear, simple and, and practical guidance. And you call like these seven steps, the laws of, of Economics. You just mentioned your money mindset and your relationship with money. That's a big part uh, of your book. Can you tell me why it's important to build um, a better relationship with, with money and how we can understand um, our relationship with money? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the seven laws of economics, we, we, as you saw, we started with, with our emotional relationship to money and with, with our, our self-limiting beliefs. So we're, we're, we're addressing that right at the, the forefront before we start talking about this is what you need to do to save for retirement. This is what you need to do to build an emergency fund. That comes right at the end. We're doing all the, all the other stuff first, really. What money means to us is below the surface. We don't look at it generally. We don't talk about our relationship to money. We might talk about our relationship to food. We might talk to our friends and family about relationships with intimate partners but we don't talk about our relationship to money and it bubbles along beneath the surface and yet it drives our earning capacity you know, it dictates kind of how much we save how much we invest how much we earn so it is important particularly when there's a block like I talked about this with, with myself there was a block I, I recognized that something wasn't working here when there's a block you know you're you accumulate debt, let's say, and you're not prioritizing paying it off, or you're you're earning a lot, but you have very little saved or very little by way of any pension or, or investment assets. So if there's something not working or you're not talking to your partner about money, or it always raises alarm with whenever the subject gets mentioned, it's highly emotive for you. If there's something that where there's an emotional charge, there's shame, there's guilt, there's fears, there's insecurities, there's spending behaviors that don't serve you, when that kind of stuff pops up, that's when it's really important to look at it. Um, if everything's working well, we don't have to do so much. But when, when something isn't working, uh, and often we, we don't admit to it and we bury our head in the sands and we become paralyzed from taking any action, but if we're honest, with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, I think we will know when things aren't working. And when something's not working, that's when it's important to look at our relationship to money. And it's such an emotive subject. So it's not just about notes and coins. It's it's about security. It's about freedom. It's about power. For some people, there's, you know, money can be used to demonstrate power or power over someone. There's inequalities that causes, you know, for instance, women being significantly under under earning compared to men and taking a lot of the roles that are the lower paid type roles and doing lots of caring responsibilities where there's no pay, like caring for children or caring for the elderly adults. So it, it's important that we look at, we, we address our relationship to money. Yeah. And um, thank you, Simon. You mentioned like if you, you know, you're, you're struggling to repay some debt or you're struggling to, to save, this is, you know, happening to you today. And because of, you know, maybe 
negative beliefs that you have. Uh, but a lot of our attitudes can be, you know, subconscious. So what type of, of exercise, exercises can we do to understand, you know, maybe where do we come from? Where do these blocks come from? Do you have like a few tips or a few examples? Yeah, good question. So first of all, it would it, it's good just to ask yourself questions like, how do I feel when I think or talk about money? How do I feel about people that are earning a lot of money? How do I feel about... You, you know, you could do a kind of earning ceiling exercise on yourself. Like, I'm earning this much. How do I feel this much, this much? Sometimes people have a, particularly people that have gone from employment to self-employment may have a an unconscious earning ceiling that is related to the job that they had, the last job they had, which might have been 15 years ago. Mm. So, and and just simply ask yourself, money is dot, dot, dot. You know, what, what does money mean to me? Money is... Freedom, security, power. What, what does it come? What comes up for you? Is it a, a, a way of measuring success or, or lack of success? What, what comes up for you there? And then asking yourself questions like, what did I learn about money as I was growing up? You know, if you had a mother and father, what, what did each of them? If you had different different role models, it doesn't have to be your parents. But what did you learn as you were growing up? What did you observe? You know, we, we take on beliefs quite often through observation. It's not directly money isn't a topic that's ever or rarely ever talked to us. We just learn by observation. So did you perhaps witness your parents arguing about money? Did you witness your dad coming home from work and his head buried in his hands, worried, and, and all you got was that kind of sense that money causes anger and confusion or it takes takes you away from your loved ones you know maybe one parent was never around because they were always working what what were the experiences you had growing up and what do you think that may have kind of formed as a belief for you today you know I've had thousands of stories shared with me and like but you know for instance a, a, a child that grew up in a very a fairly affluent way and then the father's business went bankrupt and they had to move schools and they were wearing the wrong shoes you know the summer shoes in the winter and the other children were making fun of them and the decisions that you make at that young age very very unconsciously may be like I will never ever let that happen to my children so you might go along with the lessons you learn you know for instance that kind of story could cause you to raise children where you throw money at them left right and center everything they want or need because I've certainly seen situations like that with clients where they're giving their, ch their children everything they didn't have yeah. but actually the sacrifice is the the security of the future they're getting into debt they're not saving into pension plans that kind of thing that's the the consequence of it if you really want one that really digs deep unconsciously and and this may not resonate for everyone not everyone can conjure up an image here but i find that most people can if you were to imagine you might you've invited money over for tea so you're personifying money it's turned into a person you've invited it over for tea it comes knocking on the door how does it dress what does it look like is it male or female is it a gender how does it behave How do you relate to it? Do, do you want? Do, are you welcoming it in, or do you want to 
push it away? Is it one of those acquaintances that you really would rather not spend that much time with? How do you feel in its company? What does it say to you? How do you feel about being in its presence? That kind of thing. Don't overthink it. Just see what pops into your head. And that often will dictate what really is going on beneath the surface. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm I'm just imagining myself having tea with uh, you know <laughs> a, a funny dollar bill, you know, all smiley, and <laughs> so I will definitely do this exercise. When you've identified your own money beliefs, how do you then move on if you discover that they're negative or they or they're just blocking you from doing the the things you want? Recognizing them to moving forward, what can you do practically? One thing is to, to really look at what you're doing to reinforce it. So first of all, you know, if we, and getting to that point of really understanding what is it that's that's driving that behavior that doesn't serve me, what is the belief underpinning it? If I share with you my story, I recognize that I grew up, my, my dad was a, a very talented jeweler, but He made completely unique designs. Everyone loved his work. He got great feedback, but he never really made very much money. And there was never an opportunity to save for the future, no disposable money for any luxuries in life. So we got by and it wasn't a major problem. But I recognized that I was repeating the same pattern of my dad and recognized that what happened for him is he was doing something he absolutely loved. And I think I grew up, I realized I'd grown up believing that if you do something you love, that's the, the payoff for it. You you yeah. can't expect to earn good money and do something that feels like a hobby. You know, it never felt like work for yeah. him. So I was a high earner. And then the minute I started doing something that I loved and it was my passion and it was something I created from, from scratch that was where I found that I was getting blocked. So, so then the question is, what are you doing to reinforce that? Once you've identified what that block is or what the, the, the belief underpinning it is, what are you doing to reinforce it? So that's an important question because, you know, rationally you think, well, of course, why, why wouldn't be doing anything to reinforce something that doesn't serve me? But when you start questioning yourself, you will often find lots of things you're doing to reinforce it. Then you're, the, the question is, well, okay, well, what do I want? What, what, perhaps what is the truth here? You know, what, what is the truth? That's, that correlation that I made up when I was five years old is completely untrue. You know, where's the evidence of that? So, so I could, first of all, look for evidence to the contrary. Is that really true? I don't think so. You know, and find lots of examples. So I, I've got lots of clients that, that have grown up believing that uh, people who have a lot of money have lots of negative characteristic traits. You know, they're, they're greedy, selfish, you know, they're, they're all those kind of character traits they'd never want. But then when you look at it, what's the truth there? Is that really true? So just because you've got money, that makes you this kind of character. Is that really true? So, how, so we can look for evidence to the contrary. And then we can, can also consciously as an adult, consciously make a decision of what we want to believe. You know, what, what actually is the truth here? And, and I would suggest that we make this as juicy as possible. 
So it's in, you're emotionally connected to it. This is, this is who I am. This is what I want to be. And then you take action to reinforce that. So in, in my example, it's, well, of course you can earn good money doing something you love. In fact, doing something you love means you have every possibility of earning better money. You know, you're, you're, you're doing something that doesn't feel like work, so you'll be doing it forever. You're, we can find a juicy way of, of turning that on its head and then ask ourselves, what can we do to reinforce that message? So if that person's belief of, you know, people who have a lot of money are greedy and selfish, what's the truth in that? And then what could you be doing to, to reinforce that? And, and that might be a, around, you know, my case, in, increasing my fees or, or um, delegating some of the work that meant I could, I could do more hours doing what I was doing, all kinds of things that you could do to, to change. And it, it might be around managing money more diligently. It might be looking at, you know, opening your post or creating a, a, an account to, to deal with the day-to-day money and also separating out your occasional spends, things that don't happen every single month, but you know they're going to come up, like your car insurance or gifts or Christmas, so putting aside money every month for things like that. Yeah. Then you're reinforcing a different mes- message. You know, maybe it might, your new message is, I'm great with managing money. I'm, you know, I'm a money-making machine or whatever it might be that would be juicy for you. And then deciding on action, rehearsing in your mind, kind of what can I do to to reinforce that belief? So that's how I would tackle it. Yeah. No, th- thank you, Simon. And, and when we, we discussed last time, we talked about having the, the life you want and, and having goals and having a plan. And I think it's really important to have, you know, clear and defined and actionable goals. Can you talk a little bit about how can you translate your life goals into, you know, financial money goals and how you can work towards um, achieving achieving this? Because that, you know, some of the goals can seem, you know, so far away or not very tangible. So how can you make sure you have goals that will help you get somewhere you actually like where you have money and you can enjoy your life? I think it's good to set goals and it, it's also good to be focusing on habits and day-to-day kind of small actions that make that difference because I think that's where we sometimes go wrong. With We make a goal, you know, beginning of January, these are the things I want to achieve and we're not focusing on them and we're not focusing on kind of daily action that would really make that happen. So it's the the small decisions accumulated over time that make the profound difference. Making financial goals without thinking about your life, that doesn't necessarily work. So it's more about, yeah, really thinking about what what do, what do I want to achieve in my life? Maybe it's owning a property. Maybe it's having the capacity to be able to choose to stop work at some point or to take a year out and go traveling or whatever it might be. So what, what are the things that you want to achieve in your life? And what are the the financial goals attributed to that. So, you know, if we take my one of, I had a passion for travel and I really want to go traveling, what do you need to do to achieve that? Well, maybe it was having a certain amount of money saved that would pay for the trip, or maybe there are other actions that you can take around, you know, in that situation, could could I find somebody to rent the property? What 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 are the actions you need to take in order to make that happen? I, I had a client who was in her 
well, ever since she owned a property from a young age, she rented a room and she threw all that extra rent into reducing her mortgage and she became mortgage free by the age of 38 or something. So that was a clear goal for her to try to become mortgage free as quickly as she possibly could. So renting out her room wasn't ideal. You know, she was living with people that weren't her friends or, but, but actually it, it, enabled her to reach that goal very quickly and then that freed up lots of options for her. So identifying the the financial goal and then deciding what you need to do in order to make that happen. So working backwards, it might be something like saving X amount as a deposit to purchase a property. Then you can work backwards from that and say, if I save £250 a month, then I can make that happen in three years' time or whatever it might be. And then there might be financial products that you you choose to go alongside that. So with a saving for a deposit for a property, if you're under the age of 40, you might choose to, to invest in a lifetime ISA. There might be products that are associated to that particular goal. But as I say, it's, it's also then the habits like, okay, that's great. I've got that goal, but how do I make that happen? So identifying ways that Yes, you can build up a savings account, but we also have to make sure we're not overspending and get into overdraft or, or end up putting stuff on, onto a credit card. So then it's building a, a spending plan to go alongside that, finding the tools that would help you. You know, maybe it's using one of the new digital banks to help you manage your day-to-day spending and, and categorize all your spending, put your those kind of occasional spends that we talked about before, like holidays or gifts or Christmas into a savings pot ready for when those those expenses occur. So it's also building the the day-to-day habits that, that run alongside it. Yeah, and one concept here that's, you know, really important and that I love is delayed gratification. Can you just tell me a little bit more about how we can resist like today's temptation to, you know, spend and, and especially at this time where there could be a bit of, you know, emotional spending. So we spend because we want also to, to feel better, which, you know, is fine, but you have to recognize maybe these patterns. So how can we, you know, save today and see that more as an opportunity and not a sacrifice? So I'm just going to, you know, save some of this money. I'm not going to spend it, but then it will grow. And I will have, you know, if, if we think about pensions, I will have a bigger pot in the in the future for myself. So can you tell us how we, we can take a step back and, and, and just think about impulse spending and delaying gratification? Yeah, it, it, for, for some people, it's it's much harder than others. So for some, some people, it's getting that balance right is not so difficult. But for many of us, that is quite challenging to not give in to the emotion, to not give in to that desire to fill a void maybe you know we we spend money sometimes to make us feel a bit happier you know in lockdown right now we might be feeling a bit bored and so we might buy stuff so that we get some parcels arriving and it brings a bit of joy and fun into our life (laughs) it brings Um, a lot of joy (laughs) (laughs) so i think the, the first thing is to kind of recognize what what is the emotion underpinning it so is it, you know, am I spending because I'm bored? Am I spending because I want to feel a bit better? Am I spending money on clothes because I feel like I don't, I don't like the way I look? You know, what, what's the kind of, what, what's beneath the behaviour? That's the first thing. And then 
kind of what else could I do? Like rehearsing in advance, thinking in advance, what could I do differently next time that, that trigger? So what's the trigger that gets you to spend? And then what could you do differently next time? So it might be that you you create rules for yourself, like internet spending, which is probably what we're all doing right now anyway. Um, you know, let's just say Amazon is is one of your danger zones, let's say, one of those areas that you're you're you know you have a tendency to overspend. You could have a rule that you put stuff in the basket and you don't go back to it for 24 hours or 48 hours even. And then you make a decision about whether you actually want it. You know, one of your rules might be, I'm never going to shop while I'm in bed, you know, like early in the morning or late at night, putting something in your basket could be one of your rules. So you could, you can adopt kind of rules and principles that align with the behavior that you want so that you, you catch yourself. So that emotional response happens very, very quickly. And what we're trying to do is create potentially a, a gap between that stimulus, that trigger, and then you responding to it. So that 24 hours in the basket is a good example of that, that you can create a gap between the stimulus and the response. I, I've got clients who write lists of things they need. Yeah. So you know, not like grocery shopping, but something a little bit like I need a new face cream or I need, um, there's a book I really want to read that you know I would classify as a need, let's say, and so they've got a list of those things. And then when that impulse hits, when they think, you know, they, they just find themselves shopping online, they go to the list. So at least they're buying something. They get that satisfaction, yep. that impulse that they wanted to nurture, the, the itch you need to scratch, that kind of thing. But then they're buying something that they pre-planned anyway. Yep. So that could be a way around it. So understanding what that is, if it's boredom, if it's loneliness, what else could you do next time that happens? So pre-planning things like that, that I'm going to make a phone call to one of my best friends when I feel that way, when I'm, I'm going to notice when that hits, then I'm going to do that. We're not always very conscious because it happens very, very, very quickly, that emotional response. So the more we can become self-aware, the more we can catch ourselves out, then the, the more able we are to control this stuff. So it might be that you decide for a little while to write down every time you spend money and what's the emotion behind it start becoming more and more aware of yourself that self-awareness will then help you with that kind of those kind of strategies to change your emotional response yeah these are these are really useful to to have this yeah these little tips and i think they really work so it's just I mean, it doesn't, it's not going to happen in one day. You, you sort of have to, you know, train yourself and it's, it's a journey. So, you know, you, you will all make mistake and we'll all make this impulse spend, but I guess that's okay. We just learn with, with time. Yeah. And that, that self-awareness is, is really important. And I think also if we're thinking about long-term versus short-term, the, the other thing is how we can frame up the long-term in a way that works for you. So if you're, 22 years old and somebody says you really should join your company pension scheme you know you're you're waving goodbye to five percent contributions from the employer or whatever it might be and you're thinking well what am i worried about that's kind of 40 years away or 50 years away or you know it feels like a long time away and as you get older it obviously starts to feel more significant and more you you know people notorious for for starting to think about pensions really seriously when they're in their 40s and 50s yeah. and 60s. 
So the other way to think about that long term pensions is, is an example. It's not the only product, but you know it's an example of a savings vehicle, investment vehicle designed for your your retirement. Is to think of that as a gift you are making now to your future, your future self. So the you in the future, this money, that five percent pension contribution that your employer is asking for to match their 5%, let's say, that 5% pension contribution is a gift you're making now to your future self. If you can think of it like that, it's you in the future that we're trying to protect. Yeah, reframing. And women are significantly underfunded with long-term provision. You know, we are much more focused on the here and now. So if we think of it, if we reframe it as a gift to your future self, does that bring out something different in you? Yeah. What, and if not, what what reframe can you give it that would help? No, oh, thank you, Simon. I would love to have you for another hour on the podcast. I just wanted to, you know, mention the you know the seven laws of of economics because I think they're they're important. I mean, you should definitely all read the book. But if if you want to understand a little bit more, I think the law number one: take emotional control. Law number two: go beyond beliefs. We talked about that. Law number three: spend with power. Law number four, have goals. Law number five, look debt in the face. Law number six, share financial intimacies. And law number seven, know tomorrow comes. So I think we've covered already a lot, <laughs> Simon. I just have some quick fire questions for you, please. Can I ask you what's the best financial decision you've ever made? I think purchasing a property. <laughs> yeah. From a young age, yeah. And the worst financial decision? Oh, I... I thought I knew better, but I transferred out of a final salary pension scheme in kind of 1996, and I've regretted that for dec decades. And can I ask you what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? I think food. Actually. <laughs> That's, well, in fact, sorry, my, fu my future self, my pensions and items is probably my biggest payment. But yeah, other than that, food. Yeah, great. And as as final tips, can you tell me, What's maybe the most important thing you've you've learned, you know, in your in your life, or maybe about money mindset, or anything that will resonate with uh, with women? I, I think with the with my business, and I'm still just learning. This really is the art of delegation. You know, kind of not doing everything yourself. You know, that there's a high price to pay. I think if you try and do everything yourself. Yeah. No, thank you very much. And now what's next for, for you and Wise Monkey Financial Coaching? What are you working on? So the, the biggest thing I'm working on right now is the future of the financial. So I've, in the last, I mean, for about 10 years, but in the last four years or so, especially, I've been training more and more people to become financial coaches. And we've got a community now. We've got about 120 people that I've trained and We've got regular calls where, where people come together and they share ideas and best practice. And so I'm supporting them in that role. And, and th there's more I want to be doing with that and really helping people make a su successful business. There are going to be additional trainings that we're going to be offering to, to help people on the business side of it to make it, make it work for them. But then also on their day-to-day -day financial coaching practice, the kind of building in mentoring, supervision and peer support and that kind of thing. And there's more plans for what we're going to be doing with the training and um, developing, it, developing it further, turning it into a qualification, all kinds of ideas with all that. And 
getting out there and really letting the consumers, like individuals, know financial coaching exists so I can drive as much traffic to get help them get clients. That's that's really yeah. where my my aim is much more it's not so much on my it's not on my own practice so much now, although I am still seeing some of my own clients, but it's more about developing them. Um so that's really where the, the focus is lying. Oh, we'll be following your progress. Simon, can you tell me where, where can we find you? Maybe your website or Twitter? Yeah, so the website is financial-coaching.co.uk. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Not great at posting very much on that. And LinkedIn. And Instagram and Twitter is just my name, which is Simon Ganesson. Quite complex to I could spell it, but it, but it's also everywhere. On you know, if you go onto the main website, you'll find me uh, on social social media platforms. Perfect. I will add all these websites in in the show notes, so you can just you know click on the on the websites. Simone, it was such a pleasure to have you today, and thank you for all your insight and sharing. You know what you would normally share with some of your clients. I think we all have a lot of you know practical exercises we, we can do to just get started with our money mindset so really really thank My you absolute pleasure. I really loved it thank you. thank you so much if you enjoyed this episode please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform also don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on vespot.com feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at vespot.com Thank you. Speak to you soon.